in the morning when you want the news you need the front page every hour on the press box nothing's writing on this except the uh, first amendment of the constitution freedom of the press and maybe the future of the country not that any of that matters and now the news the pittsburgh penguins beat the new york rangers 4-3 yesterday in triple overtime. It's amazing. Game one goes to three overtimes. I mean, two, my two, guess is there's going to be a lot of maintenance days today. <laughs> two fun goalie stories from this. Igor Shetsterkin saved 79 shots yesterday and lost uh, in triple overtime. 79 saves is an absurd number. I believe he faced the second most shots any goalie has ever faced in a game. And the Penguins had to change goalies in overtime because Casey DeSmith started cramping. <laughs> And they go to their backup, Louis Domingue, who, by the way, told Emily Kaplan after the game that in between intermi- one of the intermissions, he ate dinner, spicy pork and broccoli, and then had to go in the game. <laughs> what a first game. <laughs> so Penguins I can't over get over. Rangers. I can't get over the 79. Cities. It's, an, just, it's just a, lud- it's a ludicrous number. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So the NHL playoffs are here. The, here's the thing. Stanley Cup playoffs are great. Because the sport of hockey itself lends itself to close games. So even if you dominate a team, it still can be close and you can be one weird bounce away from losing, especially when it goes to overtime, which is the sport itself is perfectly set up for dramatic endings because of how low scoring and close pretty much every game is. And that it's, I mean, it's the one sport we have with true sudden death. I mean, the NFL has kind of gotten away from it, but it's the one sport we have of our major sports that has true sudden death in the postseason, which is phenomenal. So you like that better than a regular season. You wouldn't want it decided like regular season. In the postseason? No, yes. absolutely yes. not. Okay. No, just keep okay. playing. Like okay. I'm fine. Regular season's fine. I if you want to change your overtime rules in any sport in the regular season, that's perfectly fine. If baseball wants to load the bases with two outs for every extra innings or just do a home run derby after nine. That's fine. I don't care. It's the regular season, but for the postseason, you should keep it as normal as possible. And I, I love that. It's a, here's a full another 20 minute overtime period. Whoever scores first or three of them, we're going, yeah, or three of them. We're going home. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Again, great question. Also, the Avalanche beat the Predators in game one. Uh, it was 5 Dude, nothing after the this first This was period. 3-0 in like two seconds. I was on my phone <laughs> watching or refreshing. I refreshed 1-0, refreshed 3-0. I'm like, what is going on? In the first period alone, the Avalanche had an even strength goal, a shorthanded goal, and a power play goal. <laughs> Remember when Daryl Suter said it was going to be a waste of eight, eight days? Eight days playing him. <laughs> it was a waste of eight minutes. My goodness. <laughs> Happy to move on to the, to the next question here, Aaron. All right. I do need to advise you today. Uh, you should watch the Champions League at noon today. Okay. Can, will you do that? I do need to advise you that has no chance of happening. No chance at all. No. Man. No. I'll be going home and having to work a little. Really? Oh, not yeah. even not even like a, hey, I'll put it on while you work. I was, I was hoping. Well, I can have it on in the background. Because here, here's the thing. I can have it on in the background. Noon sure. today. Real Madrid and Chelsea are playing. It's a semifinal. The winner gets Liverpool in the Champions, in the Champions League final. Um, the first game, Man City won 4-3, to three, which means Real if Real Madrid wins by a goal, they'll go to extra time and keep playing. But it's it. the first game was unbelievable, like one of the best soccer games in the Champions League has had. I'm expecting today to be just as good. It, tremendous. Watch it at noon today. 
Jared? The greatest thing about a Champions League game or a Premier League game and you're off by like 10 o'clock is you can fall asleep in a sunbeam while watching sports. Will you be watching? I will be falling asleep in a sunbeam. <laughs> Next question. You, by the way, could also watch at 7 o'clock tonight the North American Champions League final. Oh, Seattle and yeah. Pumas are playing. Giant, I bet that'll be the, it's, that's going to be the same level yeah. of soccer. That's Giants and Dodgers, be. my friend Might be in that better. house. Might be better. Who won last night? Dodgers. Dodgers. Three one. Okay. It was very annoying looking up stuff for you guys today. <laughs> Great question. Matt Ryan said yesterday that there is a pretty good chance he'd still be with the Falcons if not for their pursuit of Deshaun Watson, basically confirming the reports or the ideas that Matt Ryan wanted out of Atlanta once he realized they were going after Deshaun Watson. Do you believe the Falcons screwed this up? It's interesting because obviously... They were okay pursuing him despite all his quote unquote problems right. and issues. So if you I, I I'm not sure I agree with pursuing him because of all that, but let's say you're you're fine with that and you're pursuing him, then if you have a chance to get Deshaun Watson, then I don't think they screwed it up by pursuing him. He's ten years younger than Matt Ryan. Yeah. I mean I, and he's better. Yes. <laughs> Obviously there are a lot of off-field issues that have not even been sorted out. You might be acquiring a very... Who's going to be suspended. Right, and you might be acquiring a bad human being to your roster. But I absolutely understand why, if you're the Falcons, you would say, well, if that guy's available, we should try to go right. get him. And, I, and the other part of this is, did they, did they upset Matt Ryan in the process? It appears so. He wanted to get out of Atlanta after that. I think that's a worthwhile gamble because what were the Falcons going to do this year or even in the next three years with Matt Ryan? Pro- probably nothing. Right? How old like is the, Matt Ryan? 36. 30. Right. Oh. So he could, if we're going on the Tom Brady scale. He's still got 10 years. He might have a decade left. Probably has but for most, three or four competent yes. NFL years left. So like conceivably, right, they could have stuck with Matt Ryan for you know another three or four years and maybe they put together one good team in there. But I think it makes a lot if you're if you're willing to swallow everything that comes with Deshaun Watson and his off field issues and the sexual That's my misconduct. Point. And then pursue him. I if, would pursue him. If you're willing to be okay if you're willing with to that, do that, then it's a worthwhile gamble because you Deshaun Watson could give you ten years of production of really, really better good than what Matt Ryan's gonna give you. So I, I get it from that standpoint, plus they're in a position where it's this isn't this isn't the Packers drafting Jordan Love while Aaron Rodgers there because Aaron Rodgers still gave them two back-to-back MVP seasons after that, right? The the Falcons weren't going to do anything. So I 100% understand why they would be willing or tr- even try to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So m- my question is, and maybe this is a better question for uh, Charles McDonald next uh, next you, you Tuesday. Your question out. No, I just had to swallow a burp. And I was hoping that you wouldn't draw attention to the fact that I took a, a pregnant pause there. But is could it be that Matt Ryan's issue is morally, he was like, I, I'm fine with them getting a different quarterback, but the fact that they showed me that they were willing to go get that guy, I, I could no longer be part of this organization because everything I've read about him is he's a very, like, like, 
tuned in type of individual that takes like progressive issues very seriously. Well, if that's the case, maybe usually players are just caring about their egos and their playing time. And he's done a lot for the franchise and they're trying to get somebody else. But I didn't know that about him. But if he does take those stances, there's every reason to believe he's like, if that's the kind of guy you want, then I want to get out of here. Well, when Charles, Charles, like when we talked to him after the trade, he was like, he did so much for the community. And he was one of the people that would actually say things about like injustices that were happening in Atlanta. And so it, I don't know. Part of me is like, oh, wow, you you want him? I That makes me see you in a completely different light. What happens if he finds out the Colts also wanted Deshaun Watson? <laughs> well, he's under contract. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll see. Yeah, what? John Lynch says the issues with Debo Samuel are not insurmountable. Here's his quote yesterday. We're trying really hard with Debo to work through whatever the issues might be. I always have really believed that there's a sacredness to those conversations, that they remain private, especially with things like this. I think it's in everyone's best interest we don't get into that. I don't think the obstacles are insurmountable. I think we can find a way to resolution, and we're hopeful for that because we know what he's been to this organization. What problems and John Lynch doesn't want to talk about it. Debo Samuel hasn't come out and said, this is why I want to be traded out of San Francisco. What issues could there be that Debo Samuel wants out of San Francisco, but the 49ers think that it's a fixable situation. I think more so his usage. I think it's money. I think he's looking across the league at what people are making. And I think he, I think it's more money in the contract. Why? If that's it, why would Debo Samuel not want to say that out loud? It's a good question. Because when like Debo hasn't said it, and when John, I don't Lynch think is, he said anything. Right? right, it was a report that he had requested a trade or something. And that's I it. don't think he's actually tweeted or posted on Instagram or said anything. But like when he doesn't say, when we don't hear anything from Debo Samuel about, hey, this is this is why I want out. And then you have John Lynch, who's like, it's sacred and says, we don't want, we want that to remain private, especially with things like this. If it was just a contract dispute, I mean, John Lynch probably isn't coming out saying Debo wants 112 no, million. No. And we don't like, but I don't feel like he'd be like sacred and pride. Like it feels like there's something beyond. So do you think the agent has revised him? If you continue to use as much as a runner, you're going to get hurt earlier and maybe, you're going to wear I down mean, earlier. Charles McDonald said that a couple weeks on our show that maybe Debo Samuel just simply doesn't want to be used as much as a running back because like you just said, they get hurt. You're more likely to get hurt. Those guys Your career is likely to be shorter. Maybe that's it. But even that, I don't know if Except that's for Cordell Patterson. Is that a big, is that a secret? Like, is that a big thing to be like, Ugh. well, he hasn't said anything. So right. We're not really sure. So I just, it's a weird scenario where where maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but it feels like there's there's something else there because it feels like there's a little bit more secrecy behind this. Because even A.J. Brown, right, after A.J. Brown got traded, he came out and said a lot about Tennessee and how he still loves the Titans, no hard feelings, right. but they just weren't going to pay him what he right. thought he was worth. But even before the trade, we knew A.J. Brown wanted more money. There were reports about A.J. Brown wants more money. We, we haven't really gotten that with Debo Samuel. So it's just, I don't know, it's a weird scenario. We haven't even that, gotten him, like you said, we haven't gotten him saying that he even wants to trade. Right. Maybe. How great would that be? If, like, <laughs> maybe, Debo, this, 
Devo says, I don't know where that report came. I'm fine with everything. Devo's been on vacation somewhere. <laughs> Doesn't like have good cell service. He comes back and he's like, all right, Trey Let's Lance, go, how are we doing? And they're like, wait, aren't you Trey? What? <laughs> Why are you here? here? Kalong told me a couple of days ago. I, you got to get rid of this echo. <laughs> can't talk. I'm drunk. Whatever. <laughs> One other wide receiver, DK Metcalf. He said yesterday about the Seahawks, we're going to get something done. I think I'm going to be in, going to be in Seattle for the next coming years. Seattle paying him big time money? I think money? they're giving him money. I think they're giving him, is they giving him A.J. Brown, Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams money? Maybe a little less would be my He's guess. He's still getting paid. Uh, given where Seattle is right now, should they be interested in trading uh, him for draft picks? Well, they are in a rebuild mode with their quarterback. So, <laughs> hey, Baker's coming. <laughs> yeah, right. Like DK Metcalf is twenty-four, so you can conceivably say, "Hey, we're going to." God, he's twenty-four. Right. We, we're going to rebuild for a year, in essence, and then next year we hopefully are going to be comp- contending right. again. So you can sell yourself on a twenty-four-year-old. Hey, we've got four plus years of this right. guy being good. So even if we're rebuilding now. We're going to have a couple Don't let of them go of him. because you're going to be competent in a few right. years. You can sell yourself on that, and maybe DK can be sold on that as well. It's just I'm, I'm curious where they are to, where they are at as an organization. Every team we've seen that's paid big money to a wide receiver this offseason has been a team that's going to go for it this next season. Seattle's not going for it this next season. No. Drew Locke might take half the snaps this year. So it's a little bit different, but I, it does appear as though DK Metcalf is going to get something done in Seattle. Coming up next, we'll jump into the NBA because we got 2-1-1 series. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. The Memphis Grizzlies evened up the series with the Warriors yesterday. 1-1. John Morant had 47. He scored 18 in the fourth, including the Grizzlies' last 15 points of the game. Plus, he was 5 of 12 from 3, which the interesting part about that is that the Warriors kind of let him shoot. They they left him open from three, and he knocked down five of 12, which John Moran is not a great three-point shooter, but I tend to believe he's good enough that if you simply don't contest his shots, he's going to hit a high enough percentage that it's going to be a good thing for the Grizzlies. Beyond this series, obviously Memphis has to get through Golden State, and they're still not a favorite to do so. Can John Morant do that all the way to a title? Can he be that good enough times where Memphis wins a championship? I'm going to say no. I would assume so too. But I would assume he would. He could not. That was unbelievable last night. They are a John Morant layup in the final second away from being, being up, up two nothing. And if they listen, if they were up two nothing right now, a we're talking about them winning this series because you go up two nothing, you win. I think is it 85, maybe 90 percent of the time. And B, if they're up 2-0, we're talking about they can be Phoenix, can't they? Like, that's the conversation we're having today. So I am fascinated to see if John Morant can be that good. And here's the thing. He might not have to be that good all the well, time to win Well, is he going to have to score 47? Right. I mean, that's – I don't know if he does that he again. He did yesterday. Yeah, he did. <laughs> but I am curious to see can John Morant be that good. The other part of that game that really makes me think the Warriors are still winning this Golden State shot 18% from three-point range yesterday. 18%. Curry uh, was 3 of 11 from three. Clay Thompson was 2 of 12. Wiggins was 1 of 7. Jordan Poole was 1 of 6. 
this is like a, a great shooting team. And they shot 18% from three. Like we, we say a lot in NBA playoff games, like, ah, oh, that's probably not happening again. Right. Jaron Jackson's probably not going for 30 something again. The Warriors are not shooting 18% again no. and again. When I got home last night, I, I had uh, not seen uh, most of it. And I asked my son, he goes, the Warriors are going to win the series. I said, why do you think that? He goes, they didn't even really play well and they were in it. Yeah. He's just like, you, you just watch the games and they were, you know, I guess he said they were bad in the beginning and they just weren't playing well. And he said yeah. they're still in it to the end. Yeah. If they, again, 7 of 38 from 3, if they're 10 of 38 yesterday... The Warriors are yeah, they're up 2 Yeah, I mean, they, they win that game, and they're up 2-0. So I absolutely believe Golden State's going to win this series, even though John Morant was yes. terrific yesterday because John Morant had to be great, plus the Warriors had unbelievably bad from three-point range. Now, the Dylan Brooks ejection. He gets ejected in the first quarter, uh, flagrant two. He hit Gary Payton in the head. Payton was going up for a layup. Dylan Brooks had the wind up, try to block the shot and hit him in the head. Uh, Similar to what Draymond Green did. Big difference, though, is that Gary Payton, as he was falling to the ground, awkwardly braced himself with his arm and dislocated his elbow or hurt his elbow yesterday. So Gary Payton had to leave the game. Gary Payton's probably not playing anytime soon. Flagrant two got ejected. But after the game, did you see Steve Kerr said that Dylan Brooks broke Broke the the code? code. I didn't see that. I saw on Twitter that when it happened, Steve Kerr had some very choice language for Dylan Brooks. He did in the in the in the in-game interview, he said it was a dirty play. Okay. Uh, and then afterwards said that Dylan Brooks broke the code trying to block that shot. I saw a replay of it, and this is where I don't know what you think, but in the moment when they're going 100 miles an hour, like you're like, all right, did he just try to block the shot and his heart, his arm came the different way? Because when you slow it down, to me, it looks a lot worse. Yes. I mean, when it's first happened, like, oh, he's just he's going up trying to block the shot. His arm swung the wrong way. His head came in contact with him. Um, but then you slow it down, like, oh, look at that, that was dirty. And like, I don't know if it, I don't know if his intent was what the conclusion was. No, I. Don't think I just it was don't know. What was to be the point here's, of that? Here's the thing. The NBA, this is very similar to me to targeting in football. The NBA is trying to get rid of guys getting hit in the head, right? It's obviously, you know, arms. Grant got get, hit in the head last right, night. Arms. And he got elbowed and had right. a swollen eye. It was kind of, he kind of was like blind in one eye. But like the NBA is trying to get rid of this in similar fashion to what we saw in college football in the NFL. And there's going to be a harsh punishment even if it's not intentional, right? right? Even if you're if you're just trying to block a shot and you swing and swat, uh, whack a guy in the face, you're going to get the flagrant two and get ejected. We've seen it in both games of this series now that somebody's getting ejected for that. I've got no problem with that, right? If you if you're as the league want to say, hey, we got to get rid of hits to the head, then absolutely start ejecting people for this. And basically, you've got to train players that you can't just swing, right? right. You've got to have more control and. Sometimes you're going to give up a layup because of it, because you can't just arbitrarily go in swinging and hit people in the face. The thing that doesn't make sense to me, though, is Steve Kerr acting like this was some egregious atrocity that the guy meant to do this. Because Gary Payton hurt his elbow on the landing. Right. Which, yes, that wouldn't have happened if Dylan Brooks hadn't hit him in the head. Absolutely. But Dylan Brooks didn't go in there thinking, I'm going to 
dislocate this guy's elbow no. by knocking him to the ground. Dylan Brooks was trying to block a shot. And, right. and listen, maybe Dylan Brooks was like, I'm either blocking this shot or I'm hitting him pretty hard so he doesn't make it, which it's a legitimate basketball thing, even if that's probably something the NBA probably wants to get rid of. But the whole idea of like breaking the code, like, come on now. Yeah, Draymond Green kicks people in the nuts on yeah. a regular basis. Yes. Like you, you can't have Draymond Green on your team and talk and about talk about breaking, breaking the code. That's a basketball play. <laughs> like you, Chris you just, Paul has over and over again established that nuts are part of basketball. So I just, to me, I look at it and I'm like, yes, I'm perfectly fine with the NBA trying to effectively call that type of play out of the game, right? Eject guys for that. If that's what they want to do, go for it. I'm there's no criticism for me for trying to protect guys from getting hit in the head. Perfectly fine. But the coach of the other team afterwards talking about the code and calling it like a dirty, nasty play. Well, like you said, especially a coach with Draymond Green on his team. Right. Like what like you literally just had a guy ejected for the yes. same thing in the previous game. Like, let's calm down with this whole breaking of the code thing. Like the guy got ejected. It was a flagrant two. It was called correctly. Be like upset for Gary Payton. Obviously right, he's hurt right. and it hurts the warriors, but you kind of have to move on from that because this whole breaking the code thing is to me a little ridiculous. Um, oh, one last thing on John Morant. I saw this story yesterday. It was terrific. John Morant, when he was six years old, broke his right arm. Jumping on a trampoline. He is right-handed, but he prefers to drive left because when he broke his arm, it meant that his left arm grew two inches longer than his left or than his right arm when he grew up. So it's easier for him to make layups because his arm's a little bit longer. It's a great story. Yeah. So like him breaking his arm somehow made him slightly better because the way John Morant <laughs> described it, he's like, I'm, I'm, it's a little deceptive because I'm right-handed. People right. think I'm right-handed, but I'm going to drive left more often than I drive right. So it's more difficult to defend for John Morant. And it's because he broke his arm when he was six on a trampoline. Jared is measuring his arms. Well, I broke my right arm. Oh, okay. And as a young I mean, kid before yes, you grew up. Yeah. And I mean, I also, I mean, I have the arms of an orangutan, but I'm trying to figure out like, Am I just doing this now that, like, subconsciously that he you told didn't me? You did know like, one was shorter than the other? Maybe. No, I mean, I did know that from my years of working as a tailor, the tailor's <laughs> assistant, that everybody has one arm that's slightly longer than the other. But I'm, like, sitting here, like, measuring two inches. Two inches seems insane. All right, coming up next. He would be very hard to make a suit for. Jason <laughs> Fitz joins the show. Aaron Rodgers is unimpressed with him, but we aren't. It's time for our weekly visit with ESPN's Jason Fitz. All right, Jason, can you give us a recap of playing the national anthem on a fiddle for the opening of Nashville SC's new uh, stadium? Well, I'll say I'll say two things about it. Number one, video was tweeted out, and uh, I, you know you've done something that you must have done okay if you don't get a single tweet of hate for what you just did. So I felt pretty good about that. But most importantly, I finished the anthem and I turned around and I started to walk off and Tommy Shaw of sticks and of damn Yankees for my lifetime. But the, you know, sticks for most people, uh, he stopped me on the way. Dude, 
that was one of the best anthems I've ever heard. So I don't care what anybody else thinks. Tommy Shaw loved it. Uh, it was actually pretty incredible in that stadium. Man, I, I, I'll i be honest. I've been to a couple MLS games for ESPN, but I've never actually like just gone to a game and stood amongst the supporters and, and seen the chaos of MLS. Like, that is an undertold party that, uh, like, we need to – Every city needs an MLS team that gives a damn as much as that one does because, my God, it was an incredible environment. So you're saying Las Vegas needs that MLS team everyone says it's going to get? You know, I, I, and I'll be honest with you all. Like, when I was on radio in Nashville and they said, you know, we were going to get an MLS team, I laughed, like, out loud on air. I was like, my God, there's no audience here to support it. Now they have around 23,000 season ticket holders in a 32,000-seat stadium. So, you know, they, they proved me wrong. You can't get a ticket to the thing. But, yeah, like, I, I – was genuinely impressed. They took their time. They built it as an FC club that became an FC club. Like they let it by the time they opened this stadium and have this MLS traction, they've already got a loyal following. They did things the smart way. So if Nash, if Vegas is really in that consideration, then I think, you know, the smart thing to do is to go talk to Nashville and figure out how they did it. Cause they built something special. Will you play the national anthem for the first game in Las Vegas on the fiddle too? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, if they asked me, the funniest thing is, the, the uh, CEO of the Nashville Predators sent me a text and uh, after I finished the anthem, it was like, oh, my God, that was beautiful. And what I wanted to say in response was, cool, because when I was on air covering your team, I asked you guys if you wanted me to do it. And you said, no, we're good. So <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm saying the Preds turned me down. So, uh, you know, uh, it, at this point, uh, if, if the Raiders ever call, that's a given. Yes, but if, uh, if uh, any, any Vegas team wants me, I, will, uh, I work for free food and a jersey with my name on it. Well, if the Predators ask you, the series might be over before they even get a home game with the Avalanche. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, talk about, A, a bad matchup because the Avalanche are really good and the Preds have been fair to Midland most of the season. But then you start this without your starting goaltender. And I always laugh at UC Soros being such a – like he's a, a young star in the making at goalie. I, I love everything about him. But the first year he was with the team, he was at a charity event in Nashville – and it was a bowling event. We were all there, like, doing these different things for Fred season ticket holders. And I was uh, bowling with this group of season ticket holders. And one of them asked me, like, oh, whose son is that? That's how little UC Soros is. So <laughs> I had to laugh that he's now a star starting goalie. I give you one week. How many different instruments could you play the national anthem on before a game? Uh, definitely violin, viola, dobro, piano, organ. I can sing it. I've sung it a bunch of times in life, too. That doesn't really count as an instrument. Um so I'd, I'd say I'd, I'd say six. I could I could get through six in a week. I I get I can nail it. Like honest, honest to God, like I, I don't talk about my music like much uh, in, in this sense. But like when they called and asked me to do it, I don't remember the last time I really played. So I just picked up the violin that I have hanging on my wall as a remembrance of my past life. Played it once, and I was like, all right, I got this. Threw it in the case. Second time I played it was the one time I played it at the sound check. So it was funny. They were you know they get so nervous with these things. And same thing when I did it with the Raiders, the girl. It was so sweet that was doing game ops in Oakland at the time. She was super nervous because they were doing a flyover, and she was really panicking about all of it. And I was the one talking her down beforehand. I'm like, it's going to be fine. And I'm like, I'm, I'm the one playing. She should be helping me. So, so like, yeah, there's no pressure with the violin. I'd be, I'd be nervous with the rest of them a little bit. I think I know where you're going with this, but uh, grade the uh, draft here in Vegas in your time. Uh, a minus. Um, oh. And yeah, yeah, no, it uh -oh. almost, uh -oh. almost an A plus. But there is one difference between Nashville and Vegas as a draft host, and I thought Vegas did so much of it so incredibly well. But proximity is a little bit of an issue, and so there are two things that really stunned me. Number one, 
is, you know, we all think about how spread out this trip is, right? We know that. Like, you walk out of MGM and you realize that it's not an easy walk to get down to Caesars, for example. So because of that, afterwards, it felt like the crowd sort of dissipated and went a million different directions. And that to that end, on Thursday night, when we finished our broadcast, we wanted to find a place to go just grab a bite and sort of decompress afterwards. It was actually hard to find stuff at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday night down by the end of the draft that was still open and hopping. Like, everything was done. Like, we ended up eating at Cheesecake Factory in Caesar's form because we couldn't find anything else that was, like, around and, and going. Now, Friday night was a much different situation, uh, you know, but I thought that the proximity and the way it's all spread out might make for a better day-in and day-out experience, but it made for a little bit less chaotic draft experience, which in this situation, I think, is a little bit of a, like the chaos is part of the fun. And I went day three, first thing in the morning, I went down to spending an inappropriate amount of money on draft swag that I didn't really need. And <laughs> as I went down there and the draft was starting, I was amazed at first because there was nobody down there for day three. And then I thought, man, that's one of the issues you have on a West Coast broadcast. Like it was nine in the morning and if you were out at the curb until five, like you weren't getting up to go to, to, to the draft first thing. So I think day three suffered a little bit. Those are all little nuances to what I think, like, in my mind, Nashville and Vegas are both two cities that should constantly be in the rotation for the draft. What merchandise did you buy Sunday morning or Saturday morning? Uh, well, I got a, a quarter zip. I'm a quarter zip fan. They had a really uh, a nice little thin quarter zip that subtly said NFL draft on it. And then I got a $35 service that I didn't need, uh, but it matches the one that I got in Nashville at the draft, so I sort of had to do that, you know, that that sort of stuff. I, I got a T-shirt, too, with the cards on it. You know, it, it's amazing how quickly you're like, oh, I need that, and I realize that in a year I'll be like, I can, I need to find a charity to give this to because I'm never going to wear it. How um, get, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh. How many times did you go through the Cheesecake Factory menu before you made a decision on what you would get? Yeah, that's the weirdest part about the Cheesecake Factory. Like, because what I really wanted, and, and I don't know why, but this year I really wanted like an old school uh, ice cream sundae to celebrate the draft. Like, I wanted one of those like in a big, huge glass bowl with like <laughs> big, huge scoops of homemade ice cream with like caramel and fudge and like fifty-two different like weird things shoved in it. And I couldn't find that really anywhere at that uh, at that hour. So I went with the cheesecake and. The one thing that I was adamant on is that I was going the first cheesecake I saw that I thought looked good was going to be the cheesecake I ordered. So that's the way it went. I, I went with like some thing it was called confetti. I don't know. I had like like Neapolitan mousse in it and, and confetti cake and cream cheese icing on it. I said yes to that. I don't even know what was on the rest of the, the menu on the dessert side. So uh, and the, one of the producers that we went to uh, grab a bite with just started ordering random appetizers, and I was I was thankful because that way I didn't have to actually open the menu. I felt like. You know, I was on a date or something, and he was ordering for me. And for once, I was really appreciative of that. All right. Well, tell us what you think the Raiders did. I think the Raiders uh, – yeah, well, I mean, I would finally get there. Uh, no, I think the Raiders had a, a very solid, unspectacular draft, which is exactly what they needed. Um, I've talked to a couple of guys that, that study offensive linemen, uh, and everybody seems to really like the pick. Uh, when you tell me that they're picking in the trenches and it's going to be a battle in their step, you know, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I was not surprised at all by the Josh Jacobs replacement pick. And, you know, White is, a, a, I think, a really solid running back. I think he can be a star. And the minute they didn't pick up Jacobs' fifth-year option, they told you that he was, frankly, I, w- I was expecting Josh Jacobs to get traded during the draft. That's how confident I was that they were going to draft a running back. So I think they're going to let that room shake itself out. And it's a reminder to everybody that it doesn't matter 
what the previous coaching regime thought of anybody. Like, you've got to prove yourself to new guys in the building. So I don't think anything's secure for Josh or for Kenyon Drake. And, you know, we, we've looked across the board at guys that got some money, and I don't think that really matters this year. I was surprised they didn't address corner, but also by the time they were drafting, I wasn't surprised because if the guy that you're in love with isn't there, then go with the best guy on the board, you know. And, and we saw a run on corners early in the third round. So I, I thought this was overall – by the NFL as a whole, it was the most patient and, and well-thought-out draft that I've seen in a long time from almost everybody. Like, when the Patriots have the one head-scratching pick in the first round, like, that that says something about where this draft went. It, it might not have been a spectacular draft, but it was a uh, it was a really disciplined job by every team for not falling over themselves to just take somebody because they felt like they should. I, I loved it. The whole idea of Zamir White, replacing Josh Jacobs. Obviously Jacobs has one year left on his contract. It's uh, what appears though Zamir white takes over next year as sort of the between the tackles guy. Is there any chance that happens this year? You said you thought he might get traded, but if he's on the roster, is there any chance Zamir white just simply beats out Josh Jacobs in season to be the number one between the tackles running back? I'd be surprised if he doesn't. I mean, I, I don't think the minute, and I understand that you can look at it and say, well, you know, the, the, there's costs on all of this and, Guys have reputation, but to me, the minute they pick the minute they pick Samir White, what they told the world is like we're making a change at running back. So if he, this is not one of those situations where he comes in on uh, under under Josh Jacobs in my mind. He comes in competing from day one, and I I really love Josh. I think we also have to understand that this is the churn and burn world of running backs in the NFL. Like the the non-human being, because the human being it may feels gross thing, but the non-human being. I mean, he says you got to understand that the minute they draft a running back, that clock goes to four, right? And so now it's about how much can I get out of him while he's as cheap as possible. And then four years, we'll dump him for somebody else. Like, I feel bad for Josh. Frankly, I feel bad for White. Like, this is the way this whole system works. It's the position they play. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Josh Jacobs costs too much to have any trade value now. I wondered if they'd be able to get, get him even for a fifth or sixth round pick. But they've decided to keep the room competitive. but. I'd be stunned, especially given the the, the uh, injury history for Josh. I'd be stunned if, if White doesn't find his way on the field. And once he does find his way on the field, he's an incredibly good running back. I, I mean, he is not that far off from the Brees Halls and uh, Kenneth Walker the thirds that uh, we saw go in the second round. Do they need Dylan Parham to start? I, I don't. Do they need him to? No. Will he? Yes. I think day one he starts and. Uh, you know, like I said, I went, uh, two guys that I, I, I just genuinely trust their breakdown of offensive line. And, uh, you know, I'll, I always throw Gojo's name out because he knows that uh, yeah, I'm going to throw him under the bus. Um, he was one that, you know, was when he was on air with me when Colton Miller was drafted and he laughed at me. And he was like, that is not going to work. And Mike has been the first to stand up and be like, yes, I was wrong. And here are the reasons I was wrong about Colton Miller. Uh, you know, he texted me while I was on air and he's like, you just got your day one started. The question is, are they going to put him at center? Or are they going to put him at guard? And that comes back to that contract conversation. Like, I don't think any of us should care that James got a two-year deal. Like, that, at this point, that doesn't matter to the new regime. They're going to put themselves in a situation where they get the best linemen moving forward. And everybody that I've talked to keeps telling me that he's more natural at center. I wouldn't be surprised if he starts day one at center. So I think the Raiders are still in the market for some sort of a veteran piece that they can bring in that can maybe help them at right tackle, you know, and – we're going to have to see what everybody thinks of Leatherwood. But, you know, Leatherwood starts a new evaluation process today, too. Like, the offensive line is the one clear question mark for this team that will be – it's something that will hinder this team 
from being the best in the division, the best in the conference, or the best in the league if they don't at least play at a good level. And that's asking a lot from a line that has question marks at essentially four out of five positions. All right. A minus for the NFL draft in Vegas, which is probably just an F. If it's not an A plus, it's an F, Jason. You know you got to do that, right? <laughs> There's two grades, that's A fair. plus or F. That, that's why I'm not on, on, on first take. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, never mind. Plus. You know what? They failed. It was terrible. It was awful. It was yeah. the worst ever, but it was the best ever, and I kind of loved it. We should try it again. Yeah. There, now I, I, I covered all my bases. Don't want any nuance. A plus or F. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. Jason Fitz from ESPN. Kind enough to join us coming up next. We'll get into the Celtics and bucks from last night live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. This is the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Boston got a game two win over Milwaukee yesterday. Boston never trailed in that game. So that series is one, one, um, I have two questions from that game. First one for you. Jalen Brown, most underrated star player in the NBA? Uh, I was thinking about this. Is Did Brandon Ingram have a good enough series to where he's no longer considered underrated? Is Brandon Ingram better than Jalen Brown? I don't know the answer to that I don't question. Know. I don't know who the better player is. I think I'm is. taking Jalen Brown, but I'm not 100% convinced of that. Brown yesterday had 25 in the first half and was 9 of 10. He only scored 5 in the second half, but they were cruising from there. Um, it, listen, it's a guy that's averaged 20 points per game for three straight years. Boston's been good, but granted, hasn't won a title or played for a title yet, and he's number two on that team. Jason Tatum is better than Jalen Brown. So it, to me, there's an element of Jalen Brown is really good. He's lost and, in the shadow. Right, and they haven't made that run. Where I'm curious if if Boston does, in fact, make a run to the finals, and even if they lose it, right, but if they make a run to the finals and we see Celtics over and over and over, Jalen Brown's probably going to become a much bigger name. And Yeah, because and, he's going to have to play well if they get right, to the finals. And deservedly so, right? He's right. very good, and if Boston's in the finals, most likely. So I'm, I'm curious to see what exactly happens there. But we have now seen two games in this series. In game one... Milwaukee's defense was dominant, held Boston to an offensive rating of 89. In game two, Boston's defense was dominant, held Milwaukee to an offensive rating of 91 and a half. The NBA average in the regular season was 112 for offensive rating. The worst team in the NBA was 104. So significantly worse than average, significantly worse than the worst team in the NBA so far through games one and two of the dominant defensive games. Which defense is more likely to keep that up for the rest of the season? I think Boston, because we saw it throughout the most of the year. I think Boston is. I think the first game, Brown and Tatum were so bad. Might have been an aberration. Um, I think Boston has a better chance to keep it up. So there's two things, and I'm not sure which one I believe is more likely to happen. One is that Giannis has not been very good offensively in either He's of taking the Taking a lot of games, shots. Right? He is. And if you just look at his shots in the paint, Game one, he was only four of nine at the rim and three of nine in paint shots that were not layups or dunks. So he's he was not finishing in game one or game two. Game two, he was nine of 10 at the rim, but he was 0 for nine at paint shots that were not layups or dunks. So Giannis is not scoring unless he's getting all the way to the unless rim. he's getting dunks. Right. And that, that I think it, Boston deserves a lot of credit for that. We've seen Giannis be awesome. I'm going to assume he's better than that. But here's the other part about Milwaukee's defense against Boston. Really, the only reason that Boston had a big game yesterday 
they hit 23s. They hit 47% of their threes. And if you look at Boston's two-pointers yesterday, they were 10 of 15 at the rim, which is solid. Two of seven at shots in the paint that were not layups or dunks. Six of 15 from the mid-range. Boston in two games has not done a whole lot in terms of getting two-pointers against the Milwaukee defense. And that basically sets them up for they've got to knock down 15 plus three-pointers to score on Milwaukee. And I Whose don't know defense th- do you think stays uh, stays the same? Is, is it a cop-out if I say both? If I say no, both these defenses are going to be not really good for the course of the series right. and we're going to have some like 91 to 88 final scores where both defenses are dominant, I, I think that's what happens. They're both really good.